0: Our first scripture reading uh, this morning is from Jeremiah 52. This is the very tail end of Jeremiah. I'll say more about it uh, before we have our time of confession. Uh, But essentially, as we're preaching through the New Testament in Galatians, we are reading in the Old. Dina is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along here in your bulletin. Dina. Jeremiah 52, verses 1 to
1: 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hemudel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and in Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death.
0: We are nearing the end of our Galatians series just this week and next week. And uh, what, what Paul's doing in Galatians, he spent a long time uh, detailing the differences between the law and the gospel. And now in, in Galatians 6, he is turning to immensely practical matters. How does the how do these great, sort of high, lofty, beautiful doctrines, how do they work themselves out in the life of the church? And you'll see today, there's a lot of, of relationship talk, a lot of how do we live and work and do church together. Uh, so we're gonna turn there in a second, but before we do, we're gonna read it together. Um, and I forgot who was reading. Luke! Oh, you're you're right here. Uh, Luke is going to read it for us. Uh, On the back
2: middle panel of your bulletin, you can follow along as he reads. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason for both will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word, share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, we're going
0: to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Thank you, Luke, for reading it. Maybe you've heard, but you probably haven't, of Simeon the Stylite. Now, the reason you probably haven't heard of him is he was born about 1700 years ago, uh, the early or the late 300s in what's now modern-day Turkey, but then was the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, Simeon became a Christian at an early age. As a teenager, he decided to become a monk, and he went to live in a monastery, as one does. But he was so devoted, so fervent, so extreme in his monkish practices that they asked him to leave Uh, His monk brothers judged him, and it's a quote I found, not fit for community life. Uh, As Simeon pursued God, he eventually decided to spend his time atop a column, like a big stone or wood column, so that he could be both closer to God and have peace from the world, which was constantly interrupting his devotions. The first column he had was about 10 feet high. Gradually, he moved to successively higher columns, the last before his death, being about 50 feet high. And atop the column was a small platform on which he ate, slept, prayed, you know, read the scriptures, all those kinds of things. Now, he's called the stylite because stylite literally means pillar or pillar saint. And that's, of course, what Simeon became famous for. He was the pillar saint, you know, par excellence. He passed his time in devotion to God, removed from the concerns of life though one might wonder who built all the new columns, who brought him food, who removed his waste, and so on. But what comes into your mind when you think about the spiritual life? What pictures, what images, what people... I wonder if Simeon the Stylite, or whatever his modern equivalent may be, is our best approximation of the spiritual life. We think that is what it means to be spiritual. You pass your time in quiet stillness, you're devoted to your own thoughts and prayers, you're at peace, very much apart from the concerns of the world. Now there's of course a very positive aspect to times of quiet and stillness, very beneficial. There are times when we ought to slow down, get away from busyness, hurry and noise, of course. Yet. When Paul is describing the spiritual life to the Galatians, we don't see a whole lot of what characterized Simeon the Stylite. No pillar saints are found in Galatians 6. Instead, what you find as you read this text is relational muck. You find people being restored after sinning. We see sharing of burdens, bearing of loads, encouragements not to give up, not to grow weary. And in short, the spiritual life is not only or not even most commonly found in a desert or atop a column or in a lake cabin somewhere, but really amid the difficulty, the challenge of everyday life. If spirituality, if true spirituality, the life with God, if it cannot be found in things like parenting and going to work and making supper and befriending the lonely and taking out the trash, all these sorts of things, if it cannot be found there, then it really can't be found anywhere. And what Paul is saying is, those are the places of true spirituality. That's where true spiritual maturity is both nurtured and found. So I have two parts to today's message. If you like outlines, I'm one who likes outlines, as you well know. Part one, we'll talk about the spiritual life. That's in verses one through five. And then we'll talk about the sowing and reaping business, six through ten. Paul begins in verse 1 by addressing brothers, or brothers and sisters, depending on your translation, which just means this section is intended for those who believe in Jesus. This is for church people. And Paul deals with a situation where someone is caught in a transgression. That means uh, sin. The language here is very interesting. Paul tells them anyone can be caught in transgression. Church people are not perfect. They are not sinless. They are prone to wandering. It is possible, Paul is saying, any one of you Galatians... Or any one of us might find themselves in sin. For as much as the church has a reputation of being afraid of sin, allergic to sin and sinners, for Paul, he says, oh, the place where you ought to expect sin, the place where it shouldn't surprise anyone, is actually in church. Because you know how devious it is, how it gets into everything. Next, the word caught suggests being overtaken by something. It, It hints at a pattern or a kind of stuckness in sin. I don't think Paul is discussing one-off sins that happen to all of us, the ones you are immediately sorry for and try to deal with. He's addressing the kind of person who is habitually committing the same or similar sins. They're in a web. They're repeating the same dance steps over and over. So when the church, or when a Christian, discovers such a person, and they will, what should they do? Well, popular culture suggests that when a church finds a sinner in its midst, they are shocked and appalled. Uh, Let's quickly kick that person out of here. We don't want sinners messing around in church. Or we pretend the sin doesn't exist. Let's just sweep that under the rug. The entrapped sinner is allowed to continue doing harm to themselves or others. Or, of course, churches are sometimes famous for just gossiping about the sin. (laughs) Everyone knows about it. Everyone, you know, side-eyes the sinner when they come in. The whisper campaigns get started. But nothing is done. So are any of these responses, excommunication, pretending, gossiping, are any of these what Paul commands when it comes to sin? No. No, it's not. And I would submit to you, there are, of course, times when a church ought to remove someone from its ranks of membership. The PCA, of course, we have pages and pages written about this. But the first step, Paul says, you ought to try and restore the person who has sinned. So the church isn't supposed to ignore the sin, or overreact to the sin, or gossip about the sin. They respond gently, did you see that word? Gently to restore the person. Now, did you know, fun fact, the word Paul uses for restore... It's the same word used for resetting a broken or dislocated bone, or it's used in similar settings. Paul tells the church, this should be your response when you find a person caught in sin. You, you see, they are spiritually dislocated. They are out of joint. They need to be put gently back into place so healing can, take, take, so healing can happen. I mean, imagine if after church say you come across a person with a broken arm... Think about how carefully you treat them, how gingerly you'd baby them and get them to the hospital until they could, you know, see a doctor or a surgeon or whoever they need to see. What does it mean to be spiritual? It means you enter into the sin of others when you see it and help them get back to health. And you do without superiority, without gossiping, without harshness. Now... We often think of this, or I think the immediate thought for me at least, I won't, I, won't, I won't implicate all of you, I often think of this primarily in terms of strangers or distant church acquaintances. But I think the odds are the people you will know well enough to know if they are entrapped in sin are very likely family members, good friends. Children, your children, your parents, small group members, coworkers, people like this. I think it takes on quite a different tenor if you insert a name or a relationship into verse 1. Imagine it was written this way. Brothers, if your spouse is caught in any transgression, or if your daughter is caught in any transgression, if your roommate is caught in a transgression, to be spiritual does not mean fleeing from the sorrows and sins of life, but to go to work on them as you find them in a healing way. And if you notice, Paul adds a warning at the end of verse 1, noting, when you go to help someone else in your sin, be careful, watch yourself, lest you be tempted as well. It's 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 a humbling phrase. It reminds us, sin should not surprise us. It's pretty easy to fall into. Sometimes even as you're trying to, you know, help pull someone else out of something else, that's a chance for sin to catch us. We gently restore those trapped in sin. But then Paul moves on to a related but slightly different topic in verse 2, noting we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That gives us a few questions to answer. What, is it, what does it mean to bear another's burdens? What is a burden? And how does that fulfill the law of Christ? That seems pretty lofty. Let's talk about it. Uh, burden is not a word normally used to describe sin. Uh, it's not, like, not in, like, that family of words. Whatever is being born, uh, whatever is being being bared, uh, is not a sinful thing. It has the connotation of, of weightiness, of heaviness. And we might imagine this whole passage, let's imagine it like taking a morning stroll. Imagine one morning you got up early, uh, the sun's coming up, you're walking the streets, you know, with your dog your toddler, by yourself, whatever your, whatever your situation is, getting some quiet, some sunlight. And you've already come across a person trapped in sin. They were caught in some kind of web. You work to restore them gently. But now as your walk continues, you come across a different kind of person. This person is not sinning. They are trying to move a large sofa all by themselves. And they are staggering under its weight. They're wrestling with it and you know pushing it. And they're a little bit sweaty, a little bit out of breath. They have a burden that is overtaxing their strength. What do you do with such people? Paul says, if you're spiritual, you bear it with them. And if you picture a person carrying a heavy couch, you know, on their shoulder or something, the image here is that you come stand shoulder to shoulder with them and put part of the weight onto your shoulder. It's coming and saying to them, look, I've got this corner, you've got that corner. You're side by side, you're lending your strength so that the heaviness is distributed between the two of you. Now, of course, we're not talking about couches, though we always appreciate it when people help us move, but we're talking about life burdens, and some have more life burdens than others, or we have seasons of life when burdens are especially heavy. Young children, they are a burden. That's not an insult, it just means they weigh a lot. It It takes a lot to carry children. They are a gift of God. They take an extraordinary amount of effort. Chronic illness, a burden. Aging parents, a burden. Aging yourself, its own kind of burden. Chronic marriage troubles, burden, and so on. None of these, I think, are sin, or not necessarily, but burdens are responsibilities, difficult problems, difficulties, you know, weight of some kind that must be carried. If you want to be spiritual, then you help carry the burdens of others when you can. And I also might add, you accept the help of others when you need it. If you look at verse 3, Paul warns against pride, a a false view of the self, which runs in a couple different directions. A person can think too highly of themselves, so highly that they believe the problems of others are beneath them. I am destined for greatness over here. I don't want to stoop to help you with whatever is going on in your life. But a person can also think of themselves too highly and never want to ask for help. In our culture, you will literally hear people say, I don't want to be a burden. Ever heard that? To which the Christian should respond, we are here to help with burdens. That's what we are doing. It's no sin to ask for help. Have you ever considered that by asking someone else for help, you are actually allowing them to fulfill the law of Christ? If none of us ever asks and none of us ever allows ourselves to be helped, how are we going to obey this command? Burdens are meant for sharing. There will be times and seasons for all of us when we have a burden that we need help with, and there will be times and seasons for all of us when we have extra strength to lend to those who need it. Both are part of a healthy dynamic. Now, we haven't yet answered, though, why is this kind of help fulfilling the law of Christ? Well, it's, it's fairly straightforward if you think about it for a second. Who carried the most burdens? Yeah, the Sunday school answer, Jesus carried the most burdens. He carried the burden of sin. Imagine we had insisted, I don't need help with my sin burden. Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate the offer, but I got it. It's hard to deny the burden of sin, yet we still try. Coming shoulder to shoulder with another, putting some, or in Jesus' case, all of the weight on, the, on his back. That is acting like Jesus. It's an intensely spiritual thing. Bearing of burdens fulfills the law of Christ. So on our morning walk, we've covered dealing with other sins, we've covered dealing with others' burdens. But then Paul turns, uh, sort of metaphorically, to each individual, telling them, hey, test your own work, that's in verse 4, and bear your own load, in in verse 5. Now what does Paul mean by that? How can he, out of this side of his mouth, insist, oh, share the bearing of burdens, share, share that stuff, and then out of the other side of his mouth, say, oh, test your own work and bear your own load. And by the way, what does this all have to do with boasting? Well, I've already said, burden implies something heavy, unwieldy something a person really cannot manage on their own but the the word load used in verse 5 implies something more like personal cargo everyday toil that we all carry one commentator likened it to a heavy backpack so a burden is a couch a load is like a heavy backpack now it's not perfect the greek isn't that exact but i think you get the point we all have things we carry we have a set of responsibilities entrusted to us. We make decisions in our life that make our life busy or less busy. There are things we carry on our own and that's fine. The church is in a place where everything, every load is automatically shared, but there is some individuality because of life's circumstances. Now, I think one of the main reasons Paul tells us to carry our own load is not really to change our view of ourselves. We all know we carry a load. I think it's to change our view of others. If we remember, all the people we meet along our day's journey, they're not not lightly skipping through life load-free, but they are also carrying a heavy backpack, a different backpack. It automatically makes us more generous towards those people. Uh, In fact, psychologists call this uh, taking or having a most generous interpretation, so that when you meet someone, you interpret their actions towards you in a generous way. I'll give you some examples. What is the most generous interpretation for a car and a person who cut you off in traffic? Now we might assume, you know, there's lots lots of poor things we could assume, but maybe their their daily backpack, the thing they are carrying that day, includes an unexpected hospital trip. Maybe it includes they spent 10 extra minutes with an upset coworker, and now they are late for school pickup, and they have a very good reason to cut in front of you in traffic. What if the irritating person in your small group is actually carrying a heavy backpack of anxiety because of their relationship with their parents. What if the church acquaintance who last week gave you the cold shoulder, they rushed out immediately after church, they didn't even talk to you, they just left your row and then left the building. What if they were uh, rushing to see an aging grandparent who does not have a flexible schedule? Each will have to bear his own load and when we realize that along our daily path people are carrying backpacks full of responsibilities, I think that makes us more generous, more understanding, more patient with each other. What is a spiritual life? It's a life where we work to restore those who sin, we carry the burdens of others who are weighed down, we shoulder our own load. To what end does Paul give these commands? To the end of assessing ourselves. That's the heart of verse 4. He tells us, you'll pay careful attention to your own work don't worry about how your neighbor is doing. And I think he says this because it's natural to be like, I know someone who needs to work on these things, and it's not me. It's someone else in my life who is really doing poorly at obeying these commands. No, no, Paul says, each of you test your own work. And that word boasts, it's not used sinfully. that we go around bragging, hey guys, have you seen how good I am at carrying the burdens of others? No, no, no. What What Paul is saying is, Enter into honest analysis about your own life. Consider yourself. Take stock. Be your own critic. If you want to be spiritual, if you want to fulfill the law of Christ, restore others, carry or bear their burdens, carry your own load. Now, this is fairly practical. You've probably thought of a number of ways you can apply this, but I'll give you two quick suggestions. First, the place you should begin, and this is going to come up at the, uh, in the next section too, is with the people right in front of you, You don't have to go looking for a person who is sinning just so you can, you know, practice restoring them. Just begin with the needs you are aware of right now. We have meal trains at this church all the time because there's babies all the time or whatever, or sometimes people who are sick. You you can offer a new meal to someone in your neighborhood. You can offer to watch children. You can offer to host a single person. You can refuse to gossip when a friend messes up. You, You can just make a list of all the people you know and see what needs are popping to the surface. But secondly, and I think this is maybe possibly more important to consider, this section implies that you have a bit of margin in your life to restore others and to carry their burdens. In our cultural moment, some of us have such large personal loads, such large personal backpacks, that we don't have a lot of room for anyone or anything else. Now, sometimes this is unavoidable. I'm not trying to heap guilt on anyone, but sometimes it's very avoidable. I think Paul is saying, as we think about testing our own work, he's saying, take careful stock of your life. Understand, this is how God has called us to live together. We we are not living atop all all individual columns, me here, you over there. We are an interconnected life that the people of God helping and receiving help. Okay, that's the first part. Let's move to part two, sowing and reaping. Now, the main main heart of this section is really seven through ten. But we have to deal briefly with verse 6. It doesn't really fit thematically. Paul just threw it in here, at least as far as I can tell. But it says this, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, perhaps you're wondering, What good things are you going to share with me or with anyone else who teaches? Are you supposed to share the things you're learning? Are you supposed to share your money are you supposed to share tasty snacks? You know, what good things, what does what Paul have in mind here? What good things are Christians supposed to share with their teachers? Well, the word Paul uses for share, it's a pretty profound word. It's this word koinonia, which means fellowship, community. Part of the context for Paul's comments here is that there were not clear expectations between congregations and pastors at this point. Galatians, we think, was written quite early, and so some teachers were probably paid or were kind of given, you know, a house and food or whatever. Others were not. And so Paul is is sort of briefly laying down a guideline that he's going to expand on in Corinthians and other places, Timothy and Titus, that there there can be and ought to be a formalizing of the relationship between a pastor and a congregation with obligations and duties going both ways. So at some level, this verse is saying that teaching in the church should be a job supported by the people of the church. That's sort of one level. But it's much more than a job. And the word he uses, this koinonia word, definitely suggests it, that it's more than a job. This is a partnership. There is something deeper and more profound going on between you and I and anyone else who teaches here than a mere imparting of information. What do we share with each other? Well, we share life itself. That's how we share. We are woven into each other's stories. We have a particular kind of fellowship, you and I, that's pretty unique. You hear my voice a lot. And in return, I'm financially dependent on you. And there there are other obligations that go both ways. We have this rich gospel partnership, but it is more than a job. So yes, I hope this church continues to share both its money and tasty snacks with me. Yes, I hope that. But more than that, we we have a fellowship together where I am doing my best to teach as well as I can. And you are doing your best to learn and to share. There's this two-way street of encouragement, help, and sharing. So that's verse 6, we had to get that out of the way, and when we turn from that to this larger principle that he expands upon in these last verses here, he wants to bring to bear on Galatians churches, namely, he says, there's a law of sowing and reaping that governs our world. God set it up this way, we should be careful not to, to try and thwart it or live in opposition to it. Paul offers a pretty stern warning in, in verse 7, he says, you know, don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked. Which implies they were in danger of being deceived, or they were in danger of mocking God. They, 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 were, they, were not, they were forgetting that this, this sowing and reaping law that God put into place in our world. They had to be reminded of it. Now, what is the law of sowing and reaping? Well, let's do farming and gardening first. It's a little bit easier there. Uh, sowing and reaping teaches you whatever you put into the ground comes up in the future. You plant bean seeds with sunlight and water and the right kind of soil or whatever, uh, you reap beans. If you plant tulip uh, bulbs in the fall, if the squirrels don't get to them, then you will reap beautiful tulips in the spring. Of course, sowing and reaping also says if you plant bean seeds, you won't reap tulips, and neither will tulip bulbs produce cauliflower, which seems simple. We're like, yep, okay, I, I know that law, sowing and reaping, kindergarten, I learned all this good. We forget, though, that this law is as unstoppable in the spiritual realm as it is in the agricultural. Look at verse 8. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. What does sowing to the flesh mean? What is being planted? If you were here last week, Frankie covered a lot of it. Galatians 5, 19, 20, and 21 has an extensive list of, of sins. But this is sort of sowing to the flesh is this catch-all category for anything sinful, anything displeasing to God. The flesh does not refer to bodily activities like eating, drinking, sleeping, but to sinful activities. Paul says if you bury the seeds of sin in your life, if you sow sin, if it's allowed to grow and to flourish and to bear its fruit, it will lead to corruption. Corruption is a way to describe, I think, both the consequences of sin in this life and the eternal consequences of sin in the life to come. Whatever you sow spiritually, you will reap. And if you sow sin, Paul says, it will be spiritually disastrous for you. But at the end of verse 8 is the alternate scenario. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. So a life lived for God, all the faith and trust and hope you you, you put into the ground of your life, that will produce eternal life. Remember, not as reward, the whole rest of Galatians taught us that, but as grace. Now here's a question I asked myself as I was reading this, studying this why would one forget this law <laughs> seems pretty straightforward well there's a clue in verse 9 paul tells them he reminds himself we shouldn't become weary in doing good well what's the clue uh, think of it this way let's go back to tulips you one one nice crisp fall day you go and buy tulip bulbs you know from wherever you buy tulip bulbs from. And you bring them home, and you're very diligent. You get a spade out that very day. You don't put them away. You get a spade out or a a garden trowel or whatever, and you diligently plant all your tulip bulbs in the front garden. You find a good place with good soil, good sunlight. You dig your little holes, plant them a few inches down, whatever whatever the box says, well-spaced. You cover them, you go inside. And what happens next? Well, it gets colder. (laughs) The leaves fall off the trees. A few weeks after that, where we're in right now, some combination of snow, ice, sleet, freezing rain, ice pellets, slush, etc., comes to Ottawa. And for months, long months, everything is frozen, no sign of tulips. And if we didn't have years of history to keep up our hopes, if this was our very first go around with tulips, what would we think? We'd think, well, that was a waste of time. Why did I plant the seed? There's no way they survived the winter. What I did didn't make any difference. In short, the gap in time between planting and reaping inevitably makes us grow weary. We lose heart and we lose hope. And the long winter has a way of breaking our our sowing spirits. And Paul says this is what's happening in the spiritual realm. There's always this delay between the seed going into the soil and that first sign of green, you know, in the spring, up through the last of the ice and snow. And all of us grow faint, and all of us lose heart, and we get discouraged. And one commentator writes that this word for grow weary was sometimes used to describe unstringing a bow. So think of a hunter or a warrior, you know, someone who shoots arrows, and they were like, I'm just giving up. I'm taking the string off. I'm not going to be ready. I don't feel like doing this anymore. Anyone feel like giving up on the Christian life? Anyone feel like, I, I, I've, I've given, and I've given, and I've tried, and I've tried, and everywhere I look around me is cold and frozen? Anyone have someone in your life look, that you're like, look, I've made effort after effort. I've sowed, and I've sowed, and I've sowed, and nothing changed? Anyone saying, I'm just going to unstring the bow and sit down. I don't have it in me to continue. Don't grow weary, Paul says. And I say, how can you say that? Come on, Paul. Because he says God has established this iron, unstoppable law in the world that's sustained by God's own power. He says, whatever is sown, it will eventually be reaped. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says it a bit differently. The end of Corinthians, at the end of chapter 15, he says, Be steadfast in the movable understanding because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of your labor is in vain. What changes the equation is the resurrection of Jesus. He's behind every good work, he's behind every cup of cold water offered in his name. So none of this is unimportant. All of this matters. And I know the cultural winds, they're against us. I know. I know the hostility of your workplaces. I know the hardness of your neighbors. Don't give up. I know the sleepless nights of parenting, the loneliness of modern life, the struggles to find a godly partner. Don't give up. The aches and pains of life, the sorrows of burying those we love. Don't give up. I know that sin wreaks havoc. And marriages and families and friendships are being being threatened. Don't give up. Paul says there will be a time of reaping. Because Christ has risen, because his power is at work in us, one day shoots will come up through the last of the ice and snow. So these are the days of sowing. The days of doing good. The days of carrying burdens. There will be a season... Paul promises us when reaping will come, God promised it, and his promises are true. So don't give up. Verse 10 tells us how to begin. We'll we'll do this quickly and finish up here. It instructs us, do good, then you see the next words, as we have opportunity. Find the people right in front of you. (laughs) Who's right in front of you? Particularly within the church, he says, the, the household of faith, but outside of it as well, go do good. You don't have to get stressed about it. You don't have to get anxious about it. Just open your eyes and look around. We can, in fact, I think, summarize the Christian life as do good to who's in front of you, <laughs> a.k.a. love your neighbor as yourself. But what is implicit in this text is that, we, is, is that this is the way God in Christ has treated us. What gives us the power to do good, to persevere, to help the sinning, support the stumbling, is because Jesus Christ has done good to those who are evil. He's persevered in his suffering. He forgave the sinning. If you rewrite this part of scripture, we find ourselves on the far side of every equation. It's Jesus who finds us in our transgressions and restores us. It's Jesus who bears the burdens we could not carry. It's Jesus who carries his own load all the way to the cross. It's Jesus who sowed only goodness and righteousness and reaped the reward due him. And it was Jesus who offered us his very life in exchange for ours. He didn't grow weary of us. He didn't give up on us. He persevered to the very end. So this is the great hope and prayer. Jesus makes us as he is. And he helps us start with the people right in front of us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for scriptures that encourage us and challenge us. Scriptures that, that, that both uh, show us our own sin, but also show us uh, the glory and the good that you want to do in and through us. Please help us to see ourselves rightly this morning and in the days to come. Give us the strength to do good. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.